if it is swampier, maybe the insistence on pouring deeper foundation is, is not a resilient move. The more resilient thing to do might be to adapt to that new land condition. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Rosetta Elkin, a landscape architect who works with risk and instability brought on by climate change. Rosetta joins us today to discuss her concept of imagining retreat. Rosetta, welcome. Thank you. So your research recently has focused on imagining retreat. And I want to just begin by asking you to unpack that a little bit for us. What, what, what do we mean by imagining retreat? I'll start with retreat. Um, it's very important to me in, in my research and in my experiences to differentiate between relocation and retreat. Um, it's too often conflated. People don't really find that there's enough of a difference. But when you're on the ground, when you own a home, when you're paying insurance rates, uh, the, the difference is, is very real. Relocation is institutionalized. It's top down, if you will. There are relocation schemes. People are moved willingly or unwillingly uh, for different infrastructure projects or incentives, whereas retreat is the kind of word that comes out at a community meeting. It's when people say, you know, I think we should move. Let's retreat to higher ground. And that is a very important distinction because you will never have a community meeting where someone says, let's relocate. It's just not the terminology. And so if we want under climate change uh, rhetoric to be precise about the future in, in any way and any uh, possible details that we can uh, graph to as designers, then this is one that, that actually offers us very different spatial implications. So I've been trying to define retreat through the eyes of people who make those decisions, and that is individuals. And so imagining retreat is the concept that perhaps we can imagine not building back, and that that takes imagination, it takes guts, and usually it takes a very motivated uh, and very close-knit community. So what are we retreating from? A range of environmental conditions. One can retreat from salt spray and one can retreat after a tsunami. So there's a very wide range of scales. But if you're a farmer with too much salt spray, you can't grow crops anymore. That's still a form of retreat. I spoke with an incredible uh, team in Jakarta who's working with early flood warning. And in their case, retreat is the movement from the first floor to the second floor. But knowing when to do it, and, and putting that in the hands of the community instead of a loudspeaker or an officiated uh, document is what actually gives agency back to the ground, back to the materiality of, of our practices. So would you say in the, in the context of uh, climate change that retreat is, is primarily or solely a coastal concern? No, uh, on the contrary. Um, I just came back from Nepal. Uh, it's, of course, earthquakes uh, create new ground as opposed to the rhetoric around uh, climate change where somehow we're, we're losing ground. There are a lot of different conditions. The ground shakes, it slides, it, it moves, it heaves, uh, it floods. And the decision about whether or not that precarity is close enough to home or not is one of the most important details we need to be looking at. So in that context, retreat is, is distinct in your work 
from the study of uh, migration more broadly? It, it is. And although, you know, they're twin effects, because as people start to move, quantity and scale starts to implicate uh, the term migration. But a lot of interesting studies now, in particular, I'm thinking of Matt Hauer uh, and his study on redistribution in, in the United States. His study, of course, was just coastal, 21 million coastal migrants by 2030. Is that a kind of Dust Bowl migration we're looking at? But no, on the contrary, his research shows that the tax bases within each state remain the same, and it's essentially a reshuffling. So we're talking about moving from a planning to a more elevational scenario. People want to know the height of where they live, perhaps, and not necessarily the view. So if you're at plus one or plus two or plus three, you know, feet matter in, in many parts of, of the country, but inches matter in, in others. So your work on Imagining Retreat, this suggests uh, a broad set of environmental conditions, a whole host of issues around anthropogenic climate change, increased storm event, uh, and therefore suggests that this is not simply an urban concern. Is this just about cities and city dwellers? No, it grows in complexity in cities, uh, of course, due to density, but it is absolutely a global concern, whether it's in cities or ex-cities. In fact, most of the communities that are robust and cohesive enough tend to be non-urban, and that's when they can get together and say, hey, you know, I know my neighbor. I know my neighbor enough to talk about the land we share and the flooding issue we share and the saltwater intrusion concerns that we have together. A lot of the cases do tend to be um, in smaller towns, villages, townships, provinces, uh, outside cities, but typically dependent upon them. One way of framing that is that for retreat uh, and, and for the conversations had around retreat, there is an infrastructure that exists for relocation. We know what that looks like. We know how it unfolds. We know who to contact, where to get funding. Um, but there is a missing infrastructure of retreat. In other words, when a, when a township comes together and says, let's move, they don't know what to do next. And there is no infrastructure there institutionally or economically to create a trajectory to support them. So in the distinction between retreat and relocation, it implies a scalar difference. And there's also a, a question of agency. Retreat suggests strategy. Uh, whereas relocation seems, at least in my reading of it, to be much more individual and aggregated. So when you say there's an infrastructure in place to support relocation, what, what do you mean by that? What, what, give us an example from your research on how retreat is enabled or supported or how relocation is enabled and supported in a way that retreat is not. Well, for instance, the building of the Asoboko Dam in Ghana relocated thousands of villages to create a dam. It is the largest man-made water body in the world now, and many, many thousands of villages were forced to move from a riverine condition to the mountains. So you're talking about thousands of years of evolution at the proximity of fishing and, and lifestyles that are riverine to mountains. And so that is a forced move. That is relocation. The government knows just how to do that. And the infrastructure is there. You can, it's a playbook. You have, uh, let's say, by contrast, post-Sandy, New Jersey, where a community of about 12 people got together and said, we don't want to move 
back. We don't want your FEMA money for a house here. We want your FEMA money for a house elsewhere. And it was impossible. Basically, they either took the FEMA money to rebuild in place or they weren't legible for the funding. That means that we have a missing infrastructure in the terms I'm outlining. So you've broached the context of um, uh, New York, New Jersey post-Sandy. We can include uh, New Orleans post-Katrina. In both of those examples and in the literature around them, the what I'll call in this context a, a, a de facto right of return exists, certainly in this culture, in which it's very difficult for any public official to prevent communities from rebuilding in situ in spite of their vulnerability. And in that context, how does retreat figure into those conditions? I mean, first of all, would you agree with that assessment? And then second of all, how does retreat or the study of retreat figure into that? The two examples you give are specifically uh, coastal United States. And um, one of the reasons my research has spun further and further away from the United States, despite uh, an interest in very local concerns, is because it's very difficult to precedent retreat here under our current legislations and institutions. So I'm inspired by going around the world. I'm going to Japan in May. I've just come back from Nepal. I'm going to Chile, even Alaska, because of the permafrost. There are so many incredible communities that have taken matters into their own hands, so to speak. And we could use a little bit of that type of optimism and intent in our environmental policy, I believe. And so I'm learning more and more from other parts of the world in order to bring that that's, that sort of implication closer to home, if you will. Um, in these global examples, Nepal, Ghana, um, the Pacific Rim, clearly you've encountered in your work and you've described uh, a whole range of vulnerabilities, populations at risk, environmental conditions that are unstable or somehow reproducing conditions of risk. Do you have examples or precedents of retreat that you think of as interesting case studies or examples for us to learn from? Absolutely. And before I get to the example, perhaps missing in the definition of retreat as we've discussed it so far, is that retreat is truly the land that's left behind. If relocation is the, the rebuild, let's say a community comes together and says, let's not rebuild, then when they move from that land, let's say when those 12 individuals in New Jersey move, uh, what happens to that land, right? There is an assumption under climate change terminology that somehow it's back to nature or it's gone or it's underwater or it's somehow completely outside of our scope. As a landscape architect, I see it very differently. I think that the land of retreat is the space of public engagement. It is public land again. And if you think just of coastal United States, all the pixels of ownership that might not want to rebuild may actually yield a public waterfront again that that one can access as, as opposed to privatize. Um, the question then is, what do you design in the space of retreat? How can you imagine retreat? And in the imagining retreat, this is implicit as a title, is how do we as designers offer a visual and optimistic image that is the outcome of that move? 
And so many of the cases I'm studying is not just for the community to share the experiences of getting together and and figuring out that missing infrastructure of retreat, but it's what the community actually wants to see in that space of retreat. And so you see coastal forests and you see public parks with very different programming and you see kindergartens even. It's, it's really interesting to see what people decide should be on public land and how they accumulate knowledge to, at times, uh, the case in Japan, for instance, to memorialize the space. But there is optimism there as, a, as opposed to a kind of hands-up sense of failure that a lot of people associate with moving. So in that context, um, your work is framing retreat as a set of strategic options in which, of course, there is uh, vulnerability and risk, but at the same moment, there, there, there seems to be potential for a kind of post-retreat commons, post-retreat landscapes. Absolutely. It's like revealing the commons to people uh, that, that, it, that it can be there again and adding retreat to the list of possible alternatives after an event or more likely through chronic risk. Episodic risk is very difficult for designers to address. Usually with episodic risk, you really do just want to provide the basic needs of people that have been through a trauma. Chronic risk, on the other hand, is slow and steady, and uh, we can keep pace with it in a way that we can outline what the risks are over time and make decisions accordingly. How do you deal with the um, emotional or negative connotations of retreat in so many cultural contexts? I feel that it might not be the right word. On the other hand, despite my hesitations, a lot of people have very positive connotations with it, like that one goes on a retreat to heal, or, you know, that there, there is this other tone to, to the term. So I think it's a pity that it's a dichotomy between relocation or retreat. I, I really just um, want to be able to offer more opportunities for people that are thinking of, of moving. And, and sometimes a a word helps mobilize that. I like putting imagining retreat with it because it allows people to sort of close their eyes and imagine their options instead of um, just assuming that there's an operative force that's telling them what to do. In the example you use of the community, the community meeting, a conversation or a series of conversations, this suggests a certain scale of response to these conditions. And it also presumes or maybe builds upon a certain expectation of a kind of civility, you know, a kind of identity, first of all, and second of all, a scale of, of civil discourse. How do we reconcile that with the enormity, the, just the sheer scale of these challenges, the numbers of people, uh, the numbers of coastal kilometers and miles, not to mention other conditions? Uh, and what are the political structures through which these choices might be discussed? If I take an example again, because it, to ground it always helps with the abstraction even of the term retreat. Let's say Rhode Island, a very small state with a very, very long coastline, second only after Hawaii, I've learned recently. Providence has a hurricane barrier. It's not really a problem for Providence. But what happens to the rest of the state? So this also addresses your earlier question about cities versus, well, or cities or density of, of population. Providence and the population of Providence is not under threat in a storm, but the entire coastal estuary of Rhode Island is, and the many, many towns and livelihoods that, that are along them. So 
politically, that's very difficult because the, the political energy is in Providence, of course. But when you think of the size of Rhode Island and how much bedrock there is, you know, on a, on a geophysical level, very close to uh, the shoreline, it is, again, a, a restructuring. It's being able to say, well, your house isn't worth more because it's on the water. It's actually worth less now. And if it's worth less, then if it is destroyed or you have, you know, chronic flooding in the basement, do you choose to rebuild or do you then have an option or an infrastructure that allows you to choose to build on bedrock, higher ground, but retain your Rhode Island identity and your coastal identity? I think that these are, are really, really confounding topics and politically very difficult to solve. But unfortunately, many of our political decisions are hinged on things like two-year mayoral cycles that are, again, right there, just stuck in Providence and and not addressing a longer-term chronic risk like the 30 years of, of creeping uh, sea level rise there. So one of the reasons I like to talk about retreat as a community-driven exercise, as well as um, the land that's left behind being public again, is actually because the more people learn about their options and understand that their plot of land has value when it amalgamates with other plots of land means that there may be enough pressure coming from actual homeowners, actual landowners, people that work the land, in listening to the land that they're on uh, and pushing back toward the political uh, as a result of that energy and association. So in your definition of retreat, does an individual landowner, an individual uh, citizen making a choice, does that constitute retreat at a certain scale or is it necessarily a collective choice? I, I mean, I think that it's very interesting to think of it on the individual level. My experience is that it is rarely individual because it's just very difficult financially and, and on a livelihood level to move as an individual and to abandon your home, even if you're a second homeowner, we, as we see in Florida. But I think that the terms, the defining terms on a scholarly level are absolutely singular and they amalgamate from there. But as soon as you start to bundle risk, which is exactly what the insurance agencies know too well, then there are great advantages to working with your neighbor. You know, hopefully that there are a lot of ways to slither into the system once people understand that they do have an option. And it's about making sure that those options stay in, in the hands of those micro efforts. In your work, you've been critical of, you've raised questions about the discourse around resilience and its limitations. So what do you mean by that? What, what, what is the, the challenge around thinking about resilience uh, as an intellectual framework or as a set of responses? The issue with resilience is understanding its actual definition as a term and then how it gets applied and, and misunderstood by people that aren't studying the topic and are just receiving memos or notes or emails or cautionary uh, weather reports. And resilience is actually a term that was brought into uh, ecology by a fantastic Canadian scholar named Buzz Holling. And he brought it out of material science. Now, that has been changed in many unfortunate ways to mean that it's a bouncing back. Now, it's that word back that's really problematic. But because in Hollings terms, of course, because he's an ecologist, you're bouncing forward. You're bouncing into new territory, you're, but you're never bouncing back. There's no 
back, back to what? Ecologically, you're on a successive trajectory, uh, not a restorative one. The beginning of his article is actually fantastic. It just says, populations die and go extinct. Another way of saying that is that people are either being born, dying, or moving. That's demography. That's basically how we understand the statistics of settlement. And if... As designers, we certainly do not are, are not challenged by the resilience of the medical field of whether we're dying or, or being born. Certainly moving has a lot of potential and people will move and have to move. And the question is, to what extent is moving a resilient or non-resilient opportunity? And too often the urge to bounce back, get back, build back is linked with resilience. But what if the land itself is not resilient enough to take a new foundation or to take on higher development, to increase density? The landscape is not real estate. It is biotic formation. And if it is swampier, maybe the insistence on pouring deeper foundation is is not a resilient move. Maybe the more resilient thing to do is to say, this land is swampier. We shouldn't build back here. The resilient thing to do might be to move. The more resilient thing to do might be to adapt to that new land condition or that evolving landscape condition. So when the term resilience is used ecologically, I think it's fantastic and incredibly applicable to these issues when it is challenged and twisted and transformed into a way to uh, encourage more development, then I think it's extremely problematic. So as a landscape architect, given your literacy about hauling, you read hauling's resilience to be about the ability, the capacity for an organism or its environment to um, respond to stress, to respond to, and to arrive at some form of functionality. That's not the same thing as rebuilding. It's closer in the kind of um, uh, biological sense to adaptation. And really the question often I think that gets kind of um, underappreciated is the question of, well, what level of functionality, which aspects of that organism, which aspects of that environment are we really focusing on? And as you say, I think quite rightly in your work, resilience has too often come to invoke a kind of we're simply going to rebuild it, maybe at a slightly higher elevation in a way that is slightly stronger. And that level of simply repeating the past, I think your work suggests uh, we need a, a, a level of investigation well beyond simple understandings of resilience as bouncing back. Yeah, Holling um, used uh, his studies in the boreal forest um, to discuss and to unpack the term resilience because he had to really explain why he was taking it out of material sciences and bringing it into ecology. And at the time, he was studying the spruce budworm. This You might remember the spruce budworm, but anyone who grew up near a boreal forest in the, let's say, 80s saw it just completely get wiped out, right? So all of the evergreen visually just went brown and you could all of a sudden see the oaks for the spruces. Um, now, this happened across Western uh, United States, across Northern Quebec. I mean, just rampant across the boreal system. He saw in his work that the younger the forest, the more quickly it bounced, to use you know these resilient terms, but bounced forward, right? So it was a young forest 
that could recover its functionality, to use your term. But the old growth forests that we always saw in human geography, especially as somehow a climax condition, could not recover from the spruce budworm. So he used the term to really talk about this this idea of functionality being in your ability to be diverse and and successive in your yeah your I say your but I am also just picturing a tree. I mean, if you have young roots in the ground and more sunlight above your canopy, you have more room to grow because plants are indeterminate, right? As soon as they're given more of uh, their needs, they continue to grow. And they grow and they change shape. So the forests completely transformed uh, as a result of the spruce budworm. And his argumentation was really about valuing very, very young forests as opposed to very, very old forests, which is what we tend to do. And the only reason we actually value old forests is for the timber. So uh, he really changed the paradigm with using the term resilience. And I, I like going back to that essay uh, and his examples for, for that reason. So in your work, you're placing um, a question around resilience and its interpretation uh, relative to uh, sea level rise and storm event. Um, and in that context, your argument has been to increasingly think of resilience as a temporal condition. This suggests that we're going to be thinking about resilience, we're going to be thinking about retreat, for a very long period of time. Um, are there other implications for this coming from your reading in landscape ecology for thinking about cities going forward? I think we have to recognize the landscape under our feet more. I think we've become, I don't know if this is a term, I think of disembodied and now I think of disenlandscaped. You know, do you know the ground your house is built on? Do you do you understand the quality of the geologic condition? Do you do you know what your city looked like? Uh, not that it's a restorative condition where you want to go back in any way, but it does help us find clues about what it will successively become. And so things like barrier islands. I mean, the barrier island is only ten thousand years old as a formation, as a planetary formation. It's about as old as us, right? So it we know the planet is much, much older than that. So these piles of sand, you know, around coastal conditions that we've concretized, they're young and they're still developing. You know, so that presents a condition of stability. Do we want to stabilize biophysical conditions that are actually unstable? We've settled coastlines. We love you know, fault lines. Is there a certain point where we do say after a couple of centuries of urbanizing those really wickedly beautiful landscape conditions, which is one of the reasons we want to live in them, at what point do we look at that kind of risk and say, okay, maybe this isn't the right place for this kind of development? It's a reshuffling. And I think that that has great opportunity. We've We've done it before as a species, and certainly we'll do it again. So you, speaking of barrier islands, have spent um, a bit of time over the last several years doing work on and in uh, South Florida, Miami, Miami Beach. What can you say, based on your interest in retreat, about the conditions in Miami, um, both the kind of biophysical conditions, but also the kind of conditions for urbanization there? And, and why is Miami uh, an interesting or a relevant venue for you in your global study? Miami 
is on the front lines. So uh, being in the Northeast, it's very interesting to continue to study Miami uh, in terms of its range, let's say, uh, across the Atlantic and toward the North Atlantic. So whatever ex- Miami is experiencing now, we will certainly be experiencing here in, in the Northeast. So to study it is like having a model almost of how a municipality manages these issues when it is unprecedented. So it provides precedent, if you will. Um, that means that their eyes are also wide open the municipality is incredibly enlightened and aware of the challenges, let's say. But moreover, I think the conversation between Miami Beach as a barrier island and Miami proper is very interesting because it raises that same issue of elevation that we were talking about earlier and also of 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 a zoning that doesn't take into consideration the landscape itself. So you could argue that Miami Beach has more in common with barrier islands all the way up to the northeast than it does with its adjacent mainland, right? Why don't we have zoning that is barrier island specific instead of it being hinged to a kind of municipal outline? If we did, then we could share more in common with sandy soils, right? Okay, so you have sandy soils too, so do we. We could talk about that, whether you're in North Carolina or Miami. Instead, I think it's very challenging for Miami Beach to work directly with Miami because the ground, the landscape itself is different. What is exciting, on the other hand, is that because Miami Beach is its own municipality, which doesn't happen for most barrier islands or any that I can think of, actually, it it has its own agency. Um, it has its own power to make decisions that aren't hinged on the mainland policy. So we see there an example of how the barrier condition might operate if it was freed from that zoning and developmental hinge on the mainland. And it's doing a lot. It has its own tax base. It's it's uh, that is is brilliant for how it's applying it in terms of minor infrastructural changes. It's definitely in its first generation of doing so, but at least it's trying and it is trying to improve each time. So now it's, you know, the, the municipality is working on the second generation. And that obviously means that there'll be a third. And even if it's by the eighth uh, iteration that we start to make sense of the patterning of the ground, they're the ones doing it. I find a lot of uh, excitement in talking to in- individuals down there because they're so lucid about the issues and aware of the the biophysical condition. Because Again, Miami is chronic, not episodic. There will be damage in, in a hurricane, or but that's not the issue. The issue is slow and unperceptible, and that's made it easier to ignore. And as we spoke with Jesse Keenan, we've already begun to see evidence of this in economic terms. Um, and a whole variety of both civil and you know, private, but also public actors are responding in, in, in a whole variety of ways. I mean, it strikes me what, what you say about the extremity on the one hand, the kind of legibility of the case of Miami Beach as this barrier island, but also the extent to which it was not built a century ago for stability. You know, I mean, there's something, I mean, in my own work on South Florida, I've suggested that whatever you think of um, Miami Beach as a cultural form, it's a city whose identity has been uh, in some ways bound up in architectural preservation, conservation, and whose economy 
today, uh, both the land development side and the hospitality tourism side, they both accrue from the original extremity of being in that particular position, that location, that barrier island, that environmental extremity. And so it's not simply coincidental that it ends up being so vulnerable today. So in, in that context, how does the study of retreat play into a place like Miami where clearly people have made a choice to be there over the course of the last century as opposed to it being purely a result of some kind of biophysical processes. There's also a set of cultural, social, economic choices that have been made. And so how do you reconcile that in, in your work looking at South Florida? I think Miami is really tremendous precisely for that transformative aspect you just outlined. So at the turn of the century, it was a mangrove swamp. So 20 years later, it became Miami Beach. And now here we are with the Miami Beach that we culturally value. Now, that transformation over the century is remarkable. And so it also indicates to me that we can transform again. What will Miami look like in another 100 years? Well, it won't look the same as it does, whether it's through retreat or not. Imagining Miami in 100 years, it will look different. We definitely do not want it to go back to a mangrove swamp. That, that is, again, that's exactly not resilience in, in Hollings' terms. You know, we've transformed it already. It will never be a mangrove swamp again. But what will it be? And what will it be under the terms of culture and nature that we live with the landscape that we don't we don't live on it right we we don't pacify it we we have some understanding and then we work with those dynamics what does it mean to have more porous streets what does it mean to just accept that it's sand not concrete i think miami will transform incredibly and i look forward to seeing its ongoing transformation contributing where i can it will have to to some extent though de-densify i believe the sheer number of people living on a small piece of land is is a very difficult uh, scenario for such a sandy, wet place. Given what you've said about the infeasibility of returning to some prior or kind of original landscape condition, uh, and what we know about Miami Beach, it, its preservation at elevation is untenable for many uh, observers, um, you're suggesting that the cultural image and the architectonic form the look and feel of Miami Beach will change. It already has done as a part of what your work is suggesting. So in that work, um, you're seeing people already making individual choices, individual decisions vis-a-vis -vis their own conditions. But in a way, the urbanization, the pace of urbanization is in some ways accelerating. And so in this, in this interim phase or in this period of time, when you, as you say, individuals are making individual choices and the island is actually moving toward higher elevation, but also greater density. What does that suggest for the ultimate uh, future of people living on the, on the island? I hope it suggests much more engagement with the physical environment. If the city of Miami Beach is in control of the infrastructure, which we know it is, uh, raising roads, raising intersections, raising sidewalks, um, it's at this point the role of the developer or the homeowner to meet those standards, to meet the foot of egress that kind of complicates how you get out your front door now. And that puts you as a homeowner or a condo owner or a visitor in a very precarious position because it's not being designed with 
the the longer term outcomes in mind. And so things are continue to be siloed, right? And what happens through retreat or the conversations I've been in around retreat that that really inspire me is that let's say in the context of of Miami Beach, when a condo association gets together and they want to change the way their building meets the land, the way their sidewalk meets their coffee shop front door, uh, then they get involved. And as soon as we start to have more people getting involved with these climate-based issues, then we have a more knowledgeable public. And what we really need is a public that isn't sitting around and waiting for the municipality to make a decision, but a public that comes forward to start to contribute to decision-making processes. What is the study of Miami or Miami Beach suggests when we think about other American cities? Are there lessons learned or case study examples uh, from your work in South Florida that you think suggest uh, a way forward in thinking about the American city more broadly? I think the American city more broadly is becoming tougher and tougher to define sort of as a unit or as an individuated kind of municipal condition. Um, what climate issues are, are doing, which we should really take in hand, is, is starting to blur those boundaries so that no longer do you live in a city and not know what your watershed is or where your drinking water comes from, but you're implicitly located in a biome that feeds you and, and nurtures you for this capacity for livability, and that allows you to hopefully have more responsibility at a landscape ecological level, especially. So I hope that as the American city has to adapt to more extremes, hotter ecology, and different uh, different winters. I mean, Montreal just had its a record snowstorm. Colder colds, warmer warms, the American city, the North American city, and cities globally um, have to brace themselves within a larger context physically in order to support the cultures that they engender. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham, and Jeffrey Villade is our recording engineer. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.